Well, good morning. Open your copy of God's Word with me to Matthew chapter 5, continuing in our study through the Sermon on the Mount currently as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new with us this morning, we are in the book of Matthew and we're just expositionally working our way through chapter by chapter, verse upon verse, and this morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5. We'll be picking up in verse 27. And as we study uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, we're now at that point at which Jesus is making illustration of how one wishing to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven to have a superior form or practice of righteousness than that of the scribes and Pharisees. We looked at that over the last couple of weeks. If you desire entrance into the kingdom, Jesus said, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, which if we think about that uh, very hard or long, we would probably immediately recognize that it's nearly impossible for any of us to accomplish this. If you just think of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and how fastidious they were in their religious bean counting and then their demand that others be so fastidious in their religious bean counting, I think we would come to the quick conclusion that it's probably not going to happen for us. And it seems that... um, The main point of this section that Jesus is now walking us through is to purposely show us how all people of all time um, need to understand very firmly that we cannot gain entrance into Christ's kingdom on the basis of superior behavior. To the contrary, the section is going to clearly demonstrate for us and for all people of all time that there is but one way into Jesus' coming eternal kingdom, and that by means of a genuine repentance that then enables God's gracious imputation of righteousness, or you might say his gracious imputation of righteousness that leads to said genuine repentance. So as we begin this section... uh, We looked last week, and Jesus was dealing with the Sixth Commandment, and we discovered in actuality that Jesus declares that a person uh, guilty of anger against a fellow man is no, no less guilty than had he broken that Sixth Commandment of violating God's moral command of not committing murder, and as such is just as deserving of a murder's punishment, even if all they had ever done in their heart is say, Raka, you good for nothing you fool, you, you um, imbecile, or whatever it may be, that if we have hatred in our heart toward our fellow man or brother, that we are as guilty as being a murderer because we have a murderous spirit, and one who has a murderous spirit will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And if you think about it, who hasn't at some point ever been guilty of calling somebody a good-for-nothing or something perhaps much worse? Guilty as charged. And as such, no entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom. Your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
They perhaps were capable of holding that in, biting their tongue. But inside were dead men's bones. Outside, the cup was washed clean. We saw this from John's declaration in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. He takes Jesus' teaching here very seriously, and you might even say somewhat literally. And he says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, and as such, someone who hates his brother, same thing. It's, it's the same. Unless what? Well, unless we repent of our sins and we look to Christ, we look for our righteousness that is outside of ourselves, a righteousness that, when imputed, actually enables us to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you. A divine nature that replaces a sin nature, which, which sounds exactly like the gospel, which is what the gospel is. It's the good news of Jesus Christ and the free forgiveness of sins and the imputation of his righteousness, which is the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a righteousness from the heart, and Christ kept the law perfectly. And when we have that imputed to us, God sees us not as lawbreakers, but as law keepers. Isn't that good news? Well, that's what the gospel is. It's the good news. It's good news of Jesus Christ, and that's how we obtain that righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we, <clears throat> that you and I, might become the righteousness of God in Christ, in him. And it was for this very reason that Jesus said to all who would listen, if you wish to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must repent of your sins and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now the next command that Jesus is going to deal with this morning in his Sermon on the Mount deals with the seventh commandment, which takes us to verse 27 this morning. Notice here, he continues in this theme of going back to you have heard that it was said, but I say. And what he says here in verse 27 is a, is a repeating of the seventh commandment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And again, we see that Jesus here affirms the seventh commandment. He's not undoing the law. He's not abolishing it, but he's going to bring fulfillment and completion to this. So he's affirming the seventh commandment against sexual sin, the sexual sin of adultery. No man is to engage in sexual contact or intercourse with another man's wife. And the same would be true for any woman. No woman is to engage in sexual contact and or intercourse with another man, woman's husband. Adultery is forbidden in the law of God. And everyone listening to Jesus would have heartily agreed with the truth of this seventh commandment. And I pray that's true of all of us listening to it here this morning. And so long as a man abstained from their perspective, from the scribes and the Pharisees, so long as a man abstained from that particular sin, they assumed that they legally met the requirements of this timeless moral truth. Well, notice how Jesus is about to shock their sensibilities yet all over again. He says in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in 
his heart. So where the scribes and the Pharisees would have limited the scope of the seventh commandment to nothing more than the bare act of unlawful intercourse with a married woman, Jesus now teaches instead that the scope of the seventh commandment is much wider, reaching also to the inward affections and thus prohibiting all impure thoughts and desires of the heart. Equally forbidden are the secret thoughts of unlawful sexual lust. And this is where someone might perhaps be tempted to say, well, isn't that better than actually doing the, the deed? I can't help it if I have that feeling in my heart, but I'm never going to act out on that. Isn't, isn't that better? To which I think I would say, and anybody would say, well, certainly that's better. However, before the court of heaven, you still have an adulterous heart, and as a result of that, you are guilty of adultery in your heart and will be as guilty as if you had acted out on said desires. And immediately the fairness doctrine kicks in. That's not fair. Well, when you stand before the court of heaven and you plead your fairness doctrine, the judge of all the earth, being the eternal judge who knows all right from wrong, will declare you guilty, irrespective of your feelings. It's just the way it is. And so the scribes and Pharisees wrongly believed that so long as the outside of the cup and platter were clean, they could be indifferent to whatever filth may exist within. Listen to how Jesus scolds these scribes and Pharisees later as Matthew writes this later in the book of Matthew in verse, excuse me, in chapter 23. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside are full of robbery and indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. But if I don't act out on it, isn't it okay before God? Jesus is articulating very strongly that while it's a good thing not to act out on it, if your righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, which they did, they wouldn't have acted out on that either. But on the inside, they are full of dead men's bones. So you too, he says, outwardly appear righteous to men. Verse 28, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God is interested in the heart, and if your righteousness from the heart is that of adultery, you have an adulterer's heart and you're guilty of adultery before the court of heaven. Unless we perhaps think wrongly that the scribes and Pharisees didn't know better and didn't have a right understanding of this truth, listen to just a couple of verses from the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. If we did this exercise that I'm doing right now, we could course through probably a hundred more passages just like this that demonstrate from the Old Testament God is interested in 
the heart. Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is wholly devoted to him. And then as we saw from the Beatitudes, as Jesus was bringing this into the reality of what genuine repentance looks like in the life of a believer, he said, blessed are the, what, pure in heart. They, pure in heart, shall see God. And as Jesus clearly shows us, the seventh commandment not only forbids acts of adultery, but also the desires of it. And so if a man allows himself to gaze upon a woman till his appetites are excited and sexual thoughts are engendered, then the law of God judges him to be guilty of adultery because he has an adulterous heart. Arthur Pink, in his commentary, said this very pointedly. Our Lord here declared that the seventh commandment is broken even by a secret thought, a secret though unexpressed desire. There is then such a thing as heart adultery. Alas, that this is so rarely made conscious of today. Impure thoughts and wanton imaginations which never issue in the culminating act are breaches of the divine law. So they who cherish irregular desires are transgressors of the law of impurity. The seventh commandment. And if breaking the seventh commandment like this or in any way is the normal course of one's life, it's clear to say and it's easy to say that their righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees and as such they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Instead, they will die in their sin and go to hell. So clearly this isn't talking about the look. You know what I mean? The look? In that we are all in this world and see all sorts of beauty with each passing day. And in that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We all see people in varying degrees of beauty as our eye beholds them. I can't help but think that all sorts of men have rightly recognized that my dear wife to be one of God's most beautiful and most specially beautiful women that they have ever seen. And to me, it would seem impossible to think otherwise. And I, for one, would not despise such thoughts. After all, they would be both natural and normal. It's as if breathing air, when one observes the world in which they live, they see individuals and they immediately have differing thoughts of appearance. It's just the way life is. And as such, thoughts in and of themselves, these kinds of thoughts, are not the thoughts which constitute sin and or an adulterer's heart. Simply thinking that someone is either beautiful and or handsome is no curse indeed. It comes to all of us rather naturally and easily, doesn't it? Again, such looks are not the heart of the adulterer. But if when we look, if we allow lust to stir within, 
and fantasies of the imagination to run amok and begin to deliberately seek out opportunity to be with and enjoy the company of someone of the opposite sex with whom we begin to wrongly derive pleasure from being in their presence and as such desires for them that are irregular, whether this person be real or on the screen of the phone or of the computer or of the iPad or of the magazine or of the TV or whatever mechanism by which said lusts are stirred and fantasies and wrong imaginations run amuck may be. Whether it's a person from work, from the gym, from the neighborhood, or perhaps even at church. If this lust is not strongly mortified and quickly, the heart can quickly become enthralled and the mind can quickly imagine impure thoughts and wanton imaginations as Pink said. And before you know it, the sin of lust will take you farther than you ever imagined and you will discover that your heart has been fettered by chains which no human power can break. Peter said it like this, 2 Peter 2.14, having eyes full of adultery. And notice what he says, that never cease from sin. If you don't mortify that flesh and do it quickly, you can find yourself infettered by chains which no human power can break. Eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. And it's these last two words that really seem to stand off the page. Accursed children. Because accursed children will not inherit the kingdom of God. Accursed children die, and unfortunately, because of their rebellion and sin against God, they go to hell. In other words, all adulterers, those in deed and thought, perpetual adulterers, in deed and thought, lifestyle adulterers, in deed and thought, whether with humans or with computers or screens or you name it, wherever you're getting that fix, unless genuine repentance and the bearing of fruit in keeping with repentance becomes a reality and the consistent norm and fight of your life called the mortification of the flesh. Adulterers will die and will go to hell and in that their actions spoke louder than did their words. For it's this reason that Jesus concludes the sermon. We're working slowly through the Sermon on the Mount, but when we get towards the very end of it, right at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, the culmination of all these teachings will not enter the kingdom of heaven if it doesn't surpass the scribes and the, right, the, the, scribes and the Pharisees. If you even have hatred in your heart and say, Raka, you're guilty of breaking the law. If you look at a woman and lust for her in your heart, you're, you have an adulterous heart and you're guilty of breaking the law. And so Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, this is the very end of the sermon, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven 
when your actions speak louder than your words. Your Lord, Lord was very faint. Your actions were very real. Even if they were private actions, the outside of the cup looked good, but inside were full of dead men's bones. You can fool me and you can fool each other, but we, we can't fool God, right? And so we have, to, we have to wake up to that reality. Everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And he said, if your righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And though you may not be an adulterer in the flesh, if you're an adulterer on a screen, you have an adulterer's heart. Adulterers will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of the Father in heaven, they enter, just saying things proudly. Lord, he's my Lord. That's not, that's not it. That's not what's going to get you. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm just saying what Jesus is saying here. And he says right there in verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice you who have an adulterer's heart. You who have a murderer's heart. You who never, you said you repented, but you never bore fruit in keeping with repentance, and you perpetually had a murderous heart. You perpetually had an adulterer's heart. You practiced lawlessness. And Jesus said, you, you claim to know me, but I never knew you truly. Is, is that not... Is that not a little bit of um, a shock to the system? Are these issues not real issues, not just 2,000 years ago, but real issues today? These issues are as real today as they've ever been, and we need to be those who heed the teaching of the Word of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to, be, to, to act on them decisively. Notice what Paul said about this in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. In other words, you might look at it like this. If you have a fornicator's heart, not in. You have an adulterer's heart, nope. Adulterer's heart, nope. Effeminate, homosexual, nope. Homosexual. Thieve, you're, 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 you have a thieving heart, you're not getting in. Covetous, no. Nope. How about drunkards? All I do is drink. I drink alone. I don't hurt anybody really but me. Nope. You have a drunkard's heart. Revilers, nope. Nor swindlers, nope. None of these and others, the list could go on, will inherit the kingdom of God. It's not going to happen. But pastor, I thought I was told a long time ago if I just repeated a prayer and said it after the pastor and believed in Jesus that I, had, I was in and once saved, always saved. This seems to be, this seem, you're, you seem to be laying out some kind of a works-based righteousness. This is seemingly in contradiction to the entirety of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But yet it's here Jesus saying these things himself. And then the Apostle Paul basically affirming what Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount. So how do we rightly understand what might seem in our mind to be some kind of an apparent contradiction? Good question. Are you feeling it? Do you know somebody that's got a drunkard's heart? 
Just can't, just can't give up the booze. Just can't give up the pornography. Can't. Can, can't. Don't even want to, but can't. Perpetually have a murderous heart. Angry all the time. Everybody. Err, just angry. There's more in this list. So how do, we, how do we work that out? How we work it out is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ that saves, it takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It takes us back to with John the Baptist in, in his ministry, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Repent and be baptized. Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Repent and be baptized. Repent of your sins. These are sins. Repent of your sins. And what did, Jesus, what did John say to the scribes and Pharisees after they got baptized? After he baptized them, he said what? Go and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? You know, he was a real gentle evangelist. But he let them know. You, you can't just show up at the waters and say, oh, I want in the kingdom. What does it take? Oh, it takes repentance. Okay, I repent. And you're in. He says, no, you have to bear fruit that's in keeping with repentance. So once genuine, the genuine root of salvation comes and you've genuinely repented of your sins and it looks like the Beatitudes, someone who's poor in spirit, etc. We went through those. When, when, that, when the recognition of the divine nature infiltrates a person's life, it doesn't mean that they won't struggle with sin and maybe some of the sins on this list right here. They may struggle with these, but do you know what they do? They fight like heck to mortify their flesh on a daily basis and they, have account- they seek out accountability in their life. They're not trying to hide their sins because the spirit and the flesh are at war with one another inside their chest and they, they hate the things that they do even though they find themselves doing it and they seek out help and they do whatever it takes to mortify their flesh in that area of, of life. Listen, if you went to the doctor today if you went to the doctor of the day and the doctor told you, bad news, you've got gangrene in your foot. It's going to have to come off. Well, I, I don't know, doc. I like my foot. Well, if we don't cut that foot off, you're going to die. I, I don't know. Is it, maybe I can find another way. No, there is no other way. You cut it off or you die. I don't know, doc. I think I'd like to maybe go try another option. Let me see if I can just elevate it really high or put it in... Epsom salt, or I think I'm just going to try another way, doc. No, I'm telling you, if you leave here and you don't amputate that foot, that gangrene will spread. To, it's going to continue to spread up your body. You're, it will kill you. I think I have a pretty good hunch that every single person here this morning, if you were given the news from a doctor that you have gangrene in your foot and that you, you must get it cut off immediately or you die, you would not argue you would go and have that foot cut off. But why do we not take eternal damnation with the same seriousness? It's, that's just a foot. But when it comes to the soul, men will not put away their smartphones and get a wise phone instead. They will not smash their computer screens. They will not throw their iPads into the lake and say, I can find a way to live without one. They will not do these things, and instead they choose death over life. It's truly amazing. The true root of righteousness produces in the heart of a man or a woman 
given by the divine spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, a holy unction to mortify this flesh. And we will go to whatever ends necessary to do so. And Jesus is about to lay out a couple of really staggering uh, said realities uh, about this. Notice what he says. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it away from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And then by means of repetition, with just a little difference on the illustration, but using the, obviously the eye and the hand, because with the eye you see the beauty, and with the hand you reach out and you want to take. Or perhaps with, on the screen, you, you see the, the beauty on the screen, and with the hand you self-pleasure. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus, in essence, says you have but two options, mortification of the flesh or damnation of the soul. When it comes to the eternal damnation of your soul, would, would you rather not say, well, Lord, um, okay, Lord, my, yeah, uh-huh, you're right, my eye, and it's, it's making me stumble, my my hands, but I, I think I'd like to find another way here, Lord. I, I don't know if I, I want to lose an eye. I don't, I don't think I, I need that hand. You'd cut that foot off immediately just to save your, your earthly life. But when it comes to the soul, rare a person is willing to rip their eyes out and cut their hands off if that's what's necessary to save their soul from going into hell. Because unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen, if you are today trapped in the grip of sexual sin of any sort, you have dire need to heed these words of Jesus today and to take drastic measures to remedy the sin of an adulterous heart as quickly as possible. Lest you die in the grip of your sexual sin and go to hell for all eternity. Well, pastor, are you, is it, are you taking this wooden literally like you're saying I need, to, I need to leave and go pluck out my eye and cut off my hand? This is hyperbole to make a very strong point. He's not saying, hey, you need to go out and get your eyes plucked out and your hands surgically removed. He's saying you, you need to take the most severe measures possible, so severe that it would be like this, to remedy whatever occasion is causing you to have an adulterous heart. Do it. Stop making excuses and do it. If you've claimed to have been one who's repented of sins, you're claiming to have eternal life locked down in the bag. I love Jesus. Lord, Lord, we did this. We did. We went to church regularly and went to the 
potluck on January the 29th at the church meeting and had great fellowship with people. The only things I'm doing are internally. Nobody even knows. It doesn't harm anybody. My hatred of people, I never tell anybody about it. My adulterous heart, I don't say, I don't let anybody know of the reality. It's just a private world that I do in myself. It's not hurting or affecting anybody but me. He's going to say, you're exactly right. And that's why you're going to get thrown into hell if you don't take drastic measures. Rip out your eye, cut off your hand. Which, I think, brings into clearer focus this very well-worn passage that we know from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 when he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Have you ever wondered why, why did he add this right here? What do you mean work it out with fear and trembling? I mean, <laughs> what's there to fear and why, well, trembling about what? Right? Have you ever kind of read that passage and be like, well, fear and trembling? I get the idea of working it out. We're not working for it. It's given by grace through faith. It's a free gift of God. You don't work for it. It's a free. But once you get saved, that progressive sanctification is like a synergistic work between you and God. God's at work in, right here, God, for it's God who's at work in you to willing to work for his good pleasure. But we, at the same time, are yielding to the Spirit of God on a daily basis in our life, and so we're working it out. We're not working for it. We're just working it out. But it's with fear and trembling. Because if you have a pet sin that you think is a hidden sin, it doesn't affect anybody, you've got an adulterous heart and you watch pornography on the side on the regular, I'm telling you right now, according to the word of God, you will die and go to hell according to that sin. You have an adulterous heart. You have not truly repented. I don't care what you say. You can tell me all day long, I did repent. I said the words. I got baptized. I did this. I'm just going to point you back to the words of Jesus. When he said, people will say to me, Lord, Lord, but I did not know you, you who practice lawlessness, and an adulterous heart is the practice of lawlessness. So the next time you go to turn that phone on or the screen, you go to these passages and you pray to God. Because, and then you need to say, do I even have a desire within me to, re to relinquish these sins? And if you do, you cry out to God to help you, and you take that baseball bat, and you smash that vile, wretched thing to pieces if that's what it takes. And if you need help, I'll come over to your house. I'll help you. That, that might be fun. I'll bring a big piece of wood and we'll start smashing because I care about your soul. God cares about your soul. Jesus died on the cross for your soul. You can spend an eternity with God in heaven forever and ever. But if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, if you've got a, a murderous heart, an adulterous heart, secret sins in the dark, on the outside, whitewashed tomb, inside, dead men's bones, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We can talk about it all day long this isn't a works-based righteousness. This is the fruit of the genuine root that God grants freely through repentance. And so you mortify the flesh. Are you saying, Pastor, what if a person just struggles? I just struggle. I, it's not habitual, but every once in a while I just kind of trip up and I find myself at it again. And, and I feel bad and I repent and I can go another two or three weeks or two or three months. What about that, Pastor? Hey, right now I'm just going to say I'm going to let you figure that one out. And you might want to figure it out before you die and stand before the, the Supreme Court of Heaven. Because just on the off, if he says, no, you're, 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 uh, you, you kept going back about every two to three weeks, every two to three months on the regular, you never dealt with your adulterous heart. You didn't really bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And at this level, listen, I'm not God. I can't play God. But I'm going to tell you this. I would sure hate to die and close my eyes for the last time with my fingers crossed, hoping that maybe just looking at porn three t- you know, every third month was okay or every three weeks was okay or every third day was okay. I, I, I don't want to cross my fingers and cross that great divide. Fingers crossed on the hope. How about you? Get radical. Rip out your eye. Cut off your hand. Do whatever it takes to mortify the flesh to the glory of God, the Father, so that you can let your light shine before men in such a way with a, with a, with a whole heart to the glory of his name and you can declare the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the free forgiveness of sins that all men need with a clear conscience. Amen? So I don't want one of you leaving today without truly doing business with God. The statistics show that this adulterous heart sin, especially the sin of pornography, both men and women, in our culture is at an all-time high. I've counseled with people, and they've told me, I just cannot not do this. No matter how hard I try, I cannot not do it. I'm, it's like it's, I'm hardwired for this. And what I'm saying, well, then if you feel that's the tr- if that's the truth, then you better cut out off your hand and rip out your eye, and you better smash every dang device you got, go into life blind and without hands, if that's what it takes to save your soul. Let's pray.